Good morning. Turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. My name is Godwin. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 through 13 in just a moment. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If you want to choose one topic among Christians which will reliably generate great controversy and enthusiasm, well, just talk about prophecy in the end times. You know, some Christians make this a part-time job or hobby. I don't know whether you know people like this, and if you don't, you might be that person. I don't know. You know, they've got a basement, perhaps, room that's rigged up with colorful charts and murals and pictures of dragons and beasts and helicopters and tanks. And there's kind of this timeline that's, you know, if it's fully rolled out, it would roll out for miles. And, and there's all these kind of lines and, 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 and strings attached. And they're, they're talking to you with bloodshot eyes and conviction and passion. Because all the stuff in our midst, whether it's false teachers or wars in the Middle East or Ukraine or earthquakes in Japan, it all means something. You know, there's printed materials which trace out the signs of the end of the world and even predict a particular date for Jesus' second coming. Here's a publication, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. To which promptly on January 1st, 1989, there was a corresponding book published. Just kidding, haha. And that's not the only publication, as you probably are aware. There's many publications out there, whether it's article length or even books, which promise that Jesus is coming back, and yet we know they've read the signs wrong. So, what are the signs? That's a good question, right? People are so interested in this particular topic. Consider the uh, very popular Left Behind series. Did you know that there have been 80 million copies of Left Behind sold over the years? I mean, it's one of the greatest kind of New York Times bestsellers. So, so what's the best way for us to think about this? Should we go to Jerry Jenkins and his classical reading of Scripture, or is there something else? Should we go to the text of the Bible? Now, we're about to embark on a fun and rather complicated three-week journey on this topic with Jesus, and we're going to look at the longest speech that Jesus gave in the Gospel of Mark. This is called the Olivet Discourse because it was given while he was on the Mount of Olivet. And Jesus' ministry so far has focused, especially in the, the last couple chapters, chapters 11 and 12, has focused in or near the temple. He's been drawn into kind of a series of conflicts, so with scribes and Pharisees, and they were trying to trap him and test him. And it's all been around the vicinity of the temple, all surrounding the topic of the Old Testament system of Jewish religion. And now, as we'll see in just a moment, he leaves the temple for the last time, and he has this instruction, this special teaching for four of his disciples. Let's read, starting in verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look what massive stones, what impressive buildings. 
And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, we've got to picture this magnificent site, this temple uh, that they're talking about here, this gorgeous, colossal temple with marble walls and gleaming gold pillars built by the great Solomon and later updated and expanded by Herod. So this was, this was a significant building, of course, in the uh, nation of Israel. This, was, this was, was massive. All these important events took place at the temple, sacrifices were made at the temple. Pilgrims came to the temple each year on three occasions. The temple spoke to Israel's resistance to Rome. This was a big deal, the temple. And the disciples, naturally, they're kind of admiring the temple. Dang, Jesus, look at our building. Check out this building, Jesus. And Jesus responds somewhat shockingly. Too bad it's all kind of going to come down here in a minute. What? I mean, we've got to put, put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. This was no small thing for a first century Jew to hear. The temple was the physical manifestation of the entire religious way of thinking, their entire religious way of thinking. And they had no concept for relating to God outside the temple. So for these disciples, if the temple is done away with, then it must mean the end of the world. Notice how they respond in verses 3 and 4. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things, he's talking about the things that Jesus just talked about in verse 2, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus, when is this going to happen? What are the signs that's going to kind of accompany these events of, of the temple being destroyed or coming to an end? They think it's the end of the world, in fact. But Jesus is predicting the temple's destruction. Notice again these things, these things repeated here a couple times. Now, we know historically this would happen 40 years later, approximately in 70 AD. There would be a Roman and Jewish war, which would begin in 66 AD. Titus would come in, and in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was overthrown by the Romans. But again, the disciples are concerned about the end of the world. If the temple's gone, well, that must mean the end of the world. So, of course, the question is, as we're looking at the rest of this chapter, how is Jesus going to respond to their questions and concerns? What is this chapter really about? It's about the end of the world. It's about the temple's destruction. I think too many people read this text as Jesus giving us only signs about the end of the world. In fact, look at your Bibles. If you're looking at a CSB Bible or I think an ESV Bible, most of you have those, you'll notice above verse 3 it says, signs of the end of the age. Well, I'm going to kind of burst your bubble a little bit. Those words, that heading isn't inspired by the Holy Spirit, Okay. The words above it, the words below it, yes, but not that heading. I would challenge that heading. I think it's signs of the end of the temple age. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in these first 13 verses. You know, there's wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and false teachers and the abomination of desolation. We're going to get to that next week, you know, the Antichrist. But, but is that all of what Jesus is teaching in our uh, chapter here? 
So I, I want to give you, as we're kind of preparing, this is a longer introduction, I realize, but I'm trying to prepare us for the next few weeks. I want to give you three ways to think about this chapter, three ways to read this chapter carefully, okay? Here's the first way. Think about this chapter from the perspective of the first century disciples. This is huge. We're here in the 21st century. We're living our lives. We're reading our digital newspapers. We're watching the Israeli-Palestine uh, conflict, and we're wondering... What does this Bible I have have to say about that event or Donald Trump or Kim Jong-un? It's good to apply the Bible to our world, of course, but first, first, we must put ourselves in their shoes. How would a first century Jew understand this passage? That's the first way I want you to read this passage. Here's the second way. Think about this chapter as a bouncing cannonball. As a bouncing cannonball, okay? Sometimes we think about prophecy like it's a single cannonball that kind of launches from the Old Testament or launches from the New Testament and then kind of lands in one spot here in modern history in the current world. Well, I want to invite you to think about prophecy as a more of a bouncing cannonball. It has multiple touch points. It has multiple fulfillments. For example, we'll see this next week, the abomination of desolation. That's a historical event that took place where the king of Syria in 167 BC came in and desecrated God's temple. And so it's kind of recapitulated here by way of image, and, and it's talking about the Jerusalem takeover in 70 AD. We're going to get to that next week. But then it's also a picture, the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist and the end of the world. So again, bouncing cannonball, okay? Multiple fulfillments. The third way I want you to think about this chapter is this. Think about this chapter as a dimmer switch, okay? Towards the beginning of this passage, in our verses in particular, Jesus's focus is solely on the temple and its destruction. In fact, I'd contend the entire passage that we're looking at right now is about the temple, not the end times, but as we slowly move ahead, just like a dimmer switch, the light of the next age slowly comes into the focus, for us. By the end of chapter 13, we'll only be focused on the end of the world, Jesus's second coming. In the middle of it, next week in particular, we're going to talk about both the temple's destruction and Jesus's second coming. Now, with that in mind, let's read the rest of our passage. How does Jesus begin to answer his disciples' questions? Look with me, starting in verse 5. Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main points 
of this passage in a sentence. You'll see it on your screen. Be ready to endure, dear Christian, because suffering is one mark of the fruitful church. Be ready to endure, dear Christian, because some suffering is one mark of the fruitful church. What Jesus shares here in these first 13 verses are the signs that lead up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And Jesus is wanting to give his disciples these signs to prepare them, to encourage them, to comfort them, to help them to endure. Because the next 40 years for these disciples are going to be really, really difficult. They're going to have to endure a lot, as we will see in just a moment. So this isn't about the end of the world, not just yet, at least. That's coming later in this chapter. Still, these sorts of signs and comforts occur in every age, because God's people in every age, of course, suffer. I want to point out from this passage four sets of signs and comforts. First of all, for the disciples then, but then also for us today. In your bulletin, you'll see not only the main points, left side of your bulletin page, you'll see at the bottom right some particular sources that I used. This is an extremely complicated chapter. I've spent many, many hours reading, and those three particular people, Robert Stein, Eckerd Schnabel, I like to say his name, I'll probably say that again if I can, and uh, Kevin DeYoung, those three uh, pastors and scholars in particular were uh, supremely helpful in helping me think through this passage. So I commend them to you. The first sign, the first sign and the first comfort, here it is, you'll see it on your screen, the sign of trouble and the comfort of God's plans. Friends, look at all this trouble that Jesus is predicting in verses 5 through 8. And of course, we are on this side of 70 AD, so we can actually test these signs. We can see if these predictions actually came true. Was Jesus right? Notice he first predicts in verses 5 and 6, religious imposters. There's going to be these messianic pretenders that come in. We read about Thutis in Acts chapter 5 who had 400 followers. There's false prophets like Simon Magus in Acts chapter 13. And there's others as well. In verses 7 and 8, we see wars and rumors of war. So military conflicts and political upheavals. We learn from history that between 30 and 70 AD, there were disturbances in Armenia, wars between the Romans and the Parthians, war, wars between Herod and the Nabataean king, Aretas, etc. Verse 8 speaks of earthquakes and famines. Acts 16 describes an earthquake in the city of Philippi, which occurred in about 49 AD. There were also major earthquakes in Crete and Colossae and Laodicea. There were famines in 41 A.D. There was famine, uh, famines in 46 A.D. in Judea in particular. So friends, all of this happened within the 40 years of Jesus going to the cross right after that. So we can read the book of Acts with this sort of mindset. Acts is intentionally written to show that what Jesus predicted here took place. We can read the book of Acts with new eyes. So earthquake in Philippi, hmm, okay, famine in Judea, persecutions in Rome. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus talked about here in Mark 13. So don't look at these descriptions that we have before us and think, hey, that earthquake in Japan, guess it's the end of the world. <laughs> you know? At this point in Mark 13, Jesus is talking about what is happening between 30 AD and 70 AD. Now, I know I'm sapping the fun out of your life for some of you. 
But I would imagine I'm also taking out a lot of worry too. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, look at what Jesus says. Don't be alarmed. You see that? When these things happen, don't be alarmed. Earthquakes are alarming, yes, but Jesus is warning against reading apocalyptic scenarios into every current event. Brothers and sisters, don't believe every doomsday scenario you hear from conspiracy theorists. Don't look for some big spiritual meaning in every catastrophe. It can lead to a sort of uninformed fear. Notice Jesus himself saying, don't be alarmed. After all, we can find these signs of the times in every century, can't we? You won't find some Christian 300 years ago saying, you know what? I don't think anyone's really hungry right now. War? No. I've never heard of that. False teachers? No, that must be in the future. Like, that's not the case, right? That, has ha- that hasn't happened yet. Trouble is always, trouble is always happening in every generation. Trouble is always happening, but it's never pointless, is it? Notice Jesus' next words after he says, don't be alarmed. He says, these things must take place. What does that mean? That means there is a plan. In fact, Jesus says at the end of verse 8, these are just the beginning of birth pains. This is a profoundly helpful metaphor, isn't it? The disciples need not be alarmed when alarming things happen. Why? Well, these aren't dying pains. These are birth pains. I mean, is there anything worse than pointless pain? Can't think of much. But what about pain with a purpose? That's a different sort of thing, isn't it? If you've been around a mom who's in labor, it's three or five hours. I know that's kind of a rarity, but let's just say, or maybe it's 10 or 15 or 24 hours of labor. I mean, this is an agonizing, awful, awful thing. I want to apologize to my sister the right right now as she's preparing for this, but she knows this. This is number five. It's a painful thing, but the joy of holding that beautiful newborn makes the pain worth it, right? The strife and pain that Jesus is speaking about here are woes that will give birth to a whole new world, a world that is better than anything these disciples could imagine. Jesus came to bring the entire temple and its system down and to replace it with himself. And so if the pain has a purpose, then there must, must mean that there is someone who has planned for it. You know, there's a great comfort in knowing that God has planned all of this, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, All things work out for the good for those who are in Christ Jesus. All things, even the hardest things, even the the minor uh, pains, all, all things work out for the good, says the Apostle Paul. This text isn't inviting you to wonder and worry about which part of the world these things are taking place. Not only are these verses speaking about, about pre-temple events, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss the God behind these prophecies. These things must take place. Friends, there is a divine plan at work here. Listen, friends, no earthquake, no famine, no tsunami, no tornado, no false teacher, no false prophet will trouble God's church without his good hand behind it all. This is his world. This is his world 
Maltby Babcock in his famous hymn writes this, though the world seems oft so strong, excuse me, though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens sing. God is never surprised. He never takes risks. He never makes mistakes. He makes plans and nothing can thwart them. He makes promises and nothing will break them. He makes predictions and all of them will come about. As we've, as we've already seen, as we've looked at just the, the first couple of verses here, and that's why he alone can tell these disciples and tell us today, don't be alarmed. This is such a, a gentle and, and kind instruction from Jesus. You know, there are two ways children can get woken up, either by their parents or by a sibling. This is, this is like vastly different scenarios, right? You know, so mom and dad, what does that look like? Well, you go in and just don't turn the lights on, very gentle, very quiet, and just kind of quickly, slowly uncover, and hey, it's time to wake up. It's time to go downstairs. We got breakfast ready. Don't be alarmed. We're going to head to grandpa's house in just a few minutes here. Kind of tell him what's coming, right? And then there's the sibling. Hey, do you mind going upstairs and waking up, you know, so and so? You know, the lights go on and there's loud, and, and it's just, it's the most efficient waking up possible, right? I mean, it's, it's just efficient and, and loud and bright, you know? Friends, Jesus in this passage gently wakes up his disciples to the reality of the temple's destruction. Don't be alarmed. Here's what's coming. It's going to be okay. The second sign, the second sign is the sign of persecution and the comfort of gospel fruits. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So what do we find here? Well, we see that persecutions are prophesied. You know, the more general events of verses 5 through 8 become more personal here in verse 9. Notice the repetition of you. He's talking to his disciples. You guys, you're going to experience this. And there's lots of different settings about, uh, you know, with this persecution. It's among the Jewish authorities. So we're talking about local courts and synagogues. It's even before Gentile authorities, which is why he mentions governors and kings. And as we read these verses, it should trigger something in us. Don't we see these things happening in the book of Acts? In the letters, the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin, before governors, before kings. Paul was on trial before the Jews, before the chief priests, Acts chapter 21 and 23, before a Roman governor in Acts chapter 25, before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. It all happened just as Jesus said it would. And why would Paul, the apostles, and, and Christians in those four decades experience this level of persecution? Look at the end of verse 9. It says, because of me, that's Jesus, as a witness to them, that's the authorities. Friends, the pain of persecution would precipitate proclamation. The pain of persecution 
would precipitate proclamation. The gospel would go out. Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, be ready for this. Don't be surprised by this. Be prepared for this. This is all normal for you. It's going to happen. And if you endure, if you can keep witnessing despite the difficulty, there will not only be gospel opportunities for you, there will be gospel fruits. Notice verse 10. It promises that the gospel would be preached to all the nations. Now, what does that mean? especially if this happened before the temple was destroyed, as I mentioned before. Well, that's a good question. Really glad you asked. Here's my answer. This isn't a promise of full gospel proclamation to literally every ethnic group and every nation, every geopolitical nation. This is Jesus announcing that the entire known Roman world would have the gospel before the temple's destruction. And impressively, this is exactly what happens. By 70 AD, the gospel reached the southern tip of Ethiopia, southern tip of the province. It reached the western edge of uh, Rome uh, in Spain. It reached the eastern provinces in India, and it reached the far north region of Scythia, such that the apostle Paul would write in the 50s, this is Colossians and Romans, he wrote that the gospel is being proclaimed throughout the world, to every creature under heaven and to all the Gentiles. Now, he's not thinking about Sri Lanka, right? He's not thinking about Papua New Guinea when he says this. So, in a like manner, this promise relates to the entire Roman known world. And Jesus is saying, yes, there would be persecution, but it would lead to international gospel fruits. That's what he's saying. Friends, isn't this also true today? If we continue to stand with Christ, we will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul promises that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. You know, you've got those like promise books, um, promises from the Bible, and you're, you know, all these really encouraging blessings and promises. I wonder whether this promise is in those like books that you can get. This is a promise You know, and there's two temptations that I think Christians face. You know, some of us love this kind of battle a little too much, you know. Wear persecution like a badge of honor. Let's kind of get in there, you know, and and rattle people. And accommodation? Come on. I mean, that's just compromise. You want me to apologize? Apologize for what? Yeah, sure, I could be a jerk sometimes, but God's proud of me. There's kind of another side, right? There's another side to this that I think is probably more tempting In our context, some of us believe if we can just kind of clean up the image of the church, smooth out the rough edges, we can get people to like us, get people to like church, and just kind of be winsome and likable, then maybe they'll come around. If we can just not talk about the edgy stuff and avoid it and don't get too punchy, then the world will come running to Jesus. But friends, God has made no such promise. In fact, he promised the exact opposite. If your singular aim in life is to follow Christ, to please God, to obey the word, word, to live faithfully, he promises that you will be persecuted. People might say really awful things about you. You might get a worse grade or overlooked in social situations or get passed when promotions are available. People may mock us or despise us. Do you remember Jesus talking about this? He says, Is the servant above his master? Friends, why do we expect the world will treat us better than it treated Jesus? 
May we not forget the great promise of gospel fruit here as we're trying to persevere and endure some of these persecutions. Brothers and sisters, we just don't know how our courage and faithfulness will be used by God now or down the road to break new spiritual ground. Maybe just a little bit of resilience, a moment of boldness will make way for the gospel to go further and deeper in ways you never dreamed about. So yes, there's the sign of persecution, but there's also the comfort of gospel fruit. The third sign is the sign of testing and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The sign of testing and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 11. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it, is, it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. You know, this sign is really an extension of the last one. It's, it's really another manifestation of persecution. Um, but, but here, it kind of comes to a finer point. It, it describes the, the tip, the very tip of the spear, the clearest moment of testing. It's not just kind of vague persecution happening around you or around these disciples or kind of getting thrown in jail or beaten. Those are awful things. But it's really coming to the point of testing. When your life hangs on a thread, you can either go this way or you can go that way based on what you say or how you respond. How many times do we read in the book of Acts of such encounters for the apostles, especially as they were put on trial? They had a choice. They could either fudge and get by, or they could stay true to Christ and maybe risk pain and possibly death. That's what the apostles faced, these points of great testing. And of course, we face them too in our day, don't we? Will we be okay if following Jesus means forfeiting career advancement, a promotion, more money, more comfort, because holding on to Christ is more important to you? Will you be able to go there? What about speaking up boldly with some specificity in the realm of ethics? Maybe at school, in your neighborhood, sports team, in places where your children are engaged and you're concerned? What if you face opposition for, for making a few comments with regards to expectations at work after that diversity training? If your faith takes you in front of an abortion clinic or it takes you in front of a, uh, of a school board or the city council, will you speak up? What about with your school friends before your teacher or your professor where it is clear that being a Christian in this conversation isn't going to earn you points? Will you choose Christ and his ways? You know, it's at these very particular points of testing when we can see what kind of faith is in us. But, but I want you to notice here, Jesus is so comforting, right? Look, look at how he comforts his disciples. He points out that in the very place of greatest testing, they're brought forth in, in, in these trials. And, and if they say the wrong thing, they might get like their heads chopped off, right? Notice the Holy Spirit will meet them there. What a beautiful promise for them. And of course, he does this with us today as well. You know, as a pastor, I have the privilege of being with people at some of the greatest heights and some of the greatest lows, trials and difficulties and so forth. I, I can think of one Iranian pastor who uh, I learned was kicked out of Iran and he was seeking shelter in Dubai and he had a passion. He couldn't go back into Iran because he was on a list. The secret police were after him and he would, yes, he would get killed after being arrested, likely and so his aim was to start a Farsi-speaking church in Dubai amongst the 150,000 Farsi speakers there. 
and then from that church to send people who can go back into Iran who can plant churches. I mean, you talk to Christians who are enduring persecution or, or difficult trials, and I, I hear Christians, and, and I'm talking to them, I'm, I'm seeing their soaring faith. I, I'm hearing about their concrete hope in Christ. I see their confidence that this world is just passing away, that our home is in the future, that we are just sojourners and aliens, and I'm hearing them in the midst of these, these, these really painful things, and, and I say things like, you know, I could never have a faith like yours. And often they say to me, I never thought I could either. Nobody is really prepared for suffering. Nobody is really prepared for persecution, for the phone call in the middle of the night, for some new trouble. But we believe that the Holy Spirit can meet us right in those moments of great testing. Just as the Spirit can give words to these apostles to speak in the moment, the Spirit will give us grace to stand with Christ when persecution or trial comes. Listen, friends, you can't fully prepare today for what may come tomorrow. You can trust that God will meet us in tomorrow's moment, yes, but you can't fully prepare. Practically, this means that we don't need to worry about tomorrow. Does that sound familiar? There's enough to be concerned about today. God can't show himself faithful tomorrow until tomorrow is today, right? So focus on the moment. That's where God meets us with his spirit. He's promised to help us, just like he's promised to help these disciples by his Holy Spirit. He's promised to help us in the moment of testing. There will be new mercies, according to Lamentations chapter 3, every morning. New mercies today for today's tasks, and trials. So don't waste today's mercies on tomorrow's troubles. That's why Jesus is saying here, don't be alarmed. Jesus has promised us that he is always with us, even to the end of the age. And that means in every moment where there is a need. The fourth sign, the fourth sign. So the sign of testing and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, his presence, his help, the sign of hatred and the comfort of salvation, the sign of hatred and the com comfort of salvation. So the final sign, like the last, is really another extension of persecution. Okay, so I'm kind of milking this passage. Yes, I'm milking it. That's okay. That's what I get to do. I make those choices, right? But here we kind of see the peak of persecution, you know, perhaps the most painful part of persecution. It's not just kind of jail time and trial time. Notice it's also hatred. These disciples will experience hatred from some of their loved ones, in fact. Look at verse 13. Excuse me, verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. Makes me think of the Apostle Paul. How did this kind of play out in the lives of the Apostle? The Apostle Paul, some of his very last words that he writes to young Pastor Timothy, he's pastoring in this church in Ephesus, and he writes this, this just really painful last bit in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where he essentially says, listen, God has provided all these friends, but when I was on trial, nobody was there. Everybody abandoned me. Makes me think of these verses. Everybody abandoned me. Everybody betrayed me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So Paul says, now, I don't want to diminish this as we think about today. This is a painful reality, isn't it? Some of us, because of our faith, 
have strained relationships with our parents. We have strained relationships with our siblings. We have strained relationships with maybe our old college friends. Some of us have prodigal children or prodigal grandchildren. I can think of a family, not from this church, prior church that I've been a part of, and they have a daughter who started acting out in different ways. And when she got to be in middle school, she decided to transition genders and and she was asking for, for hormone therapy and, and, and the whole nine yards. And, and her parents initially were, were like, okay, I, I, how do I respond to her? And, and, and they were starting to feel, as they were hesitating to respond to her, they were starting to feel this animosity from, from her towards them. This real hatred from her towards them that was kind of growing as they were trying to kind of stand with Christ. And unfortunately, this family, over time, they capitulated, they compromised. They wanted her love, of course, more than her hatred. They wanted her affection more than staying faithful to Jesus. And it makes sense. It's understandable. They want their daughter to be happy. But friends, there are some things worse than your daughter hating you. It's easy for me to say that, I know. I have a sister who for maybe 15 years, 15 years we were praying for her. She was a prodigal sister, daughter, etc. God answers those prayers. He did. She's in a different place, some of you know. So I felt some of that pain, that animosity, that hatred even at times towards the Lord, towards family. But friends, there are some things worse than a loved one hating you. Like what? Well, like losing your own faith, like losing your daughter to the enemy. Jesus is crystal clear here. I want you to see it again. He says, again in verse 13, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. If everyone in your life is overwhelmingly uh, adoring you and you kind of blend in and you don't kind of cause any tremors, any relational tremors as a Christian, right? It might mean, it might mean that you've compromised your faith in some fashion. It might mean you've remained silent when he's called you to speak up. It might mean you're organizing your life around pleasing man more than pleasing God. So, Hatred is a sign, but I want you to notice the comfort that Jesus offers at the end of verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus knows this is a heavy teaching for his pretty ordinary disciples, right? You kind of wish at least one of these signs was, you know, you will be rich or you're going to discover electricity or, or something nice, right? But, but as we're kind of walking through this, each sign has an encouragement attached to it. Yes, but each sign is kind of a downer, right? And this last one, this last encouragement, is just full of realism. Jesus is saying that only those who endure have been truly born again. He's telling his disciples, yes, you will need to endure all the way to the end. The persecution stuff, the temple's destruction, that's going to be really hard. The end of your life, all the hard stuff, you've got to endure that. But your endurance is a sign that you are a real Christian. God is reminding us this morning, endurance, resilience, fortitude, perhaps this is the most important quality of the Christian faith. 
Our lives are to, to be a long obedience in the same direction. That comes from Eugene Peterson. And our direction is far more important than our pace. We're never told to run the race with speed or run the race with a smile always or to run the race with ease or run the race at the front of the pack. We're told to run the race in such a way that we will finish the race. That's the goal. What's your goal this week and next week, Christian? It's to remain a Christian. What does Christian love look like this week and next week? It's to help others remain a Christian. What's the point of Sunday morning worship services? It's to help you remain a Christian. And for those of you that don't know Christ, to help you become one. It's not flashes of spiritual brilliance. It's not engaging the spiritual mountaintop moments while neglecting every other moment. What confirms your salvation is faithful plotting. It's simple, everyday obedience, behind-the-scenes holiness. So let me ask you this kind of diagnostic questions. Brothers and sisters, what in your life right now is threatening your Christian endurance? Where are you being tested right now to compromise, to fudge? Here's the amazing thing. You know, Jesus doesn't only demand endurance. He displays it in his own life, doesn't he? For the joy set before him, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross. He endured this wooden thing, this, this Roman torture device for the sake of. Here's the fruit. Here's the fruitfulness, the gospel fruitfulness. He endured the cross so that sinners can come to know his Father. He ran the race first. He overcame trouble and persecution and testing and hatred first. And he made it to the end with his character intact, didn't he? Now he's asking his followers to look to him for strength so we can do the same. You know, we've got waves crashing all about us, don't we? You know, maybe it's physical, traumatic incidents, you know, whether it's earthquakes or tornadoes or false teachers and prophets or hostile authorities around us or the, the severe compromise that we find sometimes in our governments or hatred from loved ones, all these different things. These waves are just crashing all around us. It makes it very difficult to endure. But friends, we've got something stronger than the waves that we can hold on to, don't we? My kids love being in the water. And uh, we've got four kids, 11 down to three. And I still, I, almost every kid, you know, has, can learn to walk and they get into the water, whether it's the ocean or Lake Michigan. Um, and as kind of the, some of the waves are starting to crash over them, they get pretty scared, as you would imagine. And even if I'm there standing right next to them as the waves are crashing, you know, I seem rather small. The waves seem rather big to my little ones. I remember Josh in particular. He's now six, I think. Um, when he was, <laughs> give or take, <laughs> Josh, when he was maybe two or three years old, I remember him looking over at me and saying, hold you, daddy, hold you, daddy. Now, he, of course, has three choices. He could stand there and get knocked over by the waves. He could totally avoid the waves. He could run out straight of the water. Or he could hold on to someone that's stronger than the waves. If he latches onto me, he's still going to get wet. He's still going to have that water come over him. But the waves don't seem that bad, do they? And when he latches onto me, my arms quickly wrap around him. Maybe it's just my, my right arm, and I'm, I'm just holding onto him. And I don't care if he lets go for a moment. I'm not letting go, right? 
Here we find, I think, a picture of Christian endurance. It's not so much about how great your hold is. It's about who you're holding on to because he will never let go. Jesus once said, John chapter 10, he said that no one can snatch his sheep from his hands. And then later, just a couple of verses later, he says, actually, no one can snatch you if you're a sheep from the Father's hands. And so we have this confidence, right? This, this double divine grip confidence that he will never let go. So yes, cling to Jesus as the waves crash, and sometimes you're going to lose that grip. Endurance means regripping, getting a hold of him again and again and again as new waves start crash, crashing upon us. And I know sometimes we wonder, did I just lose my faith? Am I okay? Do I have another chance? Did I mess this up? Never fear, Christian. Never fear, because the whole time, for the entire span of your life, he will never lose his grip on you. Amen. Let's take a moment to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper and consider the passage as well.